Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Brother Well Brewing is the official local brewery of the Waco History Podcast. Back on tap, try the Shelter and Haze, Hazy IPA. And look for their beers in the Wooded Acres HEB. That's Brotherwell Brewing on Historic Bridge Street. The beer that pairs perfectly with Waco history. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, how railroads shaped Waco. You had connections to Kansas City. You had connections to San Antonio, to Houston, to the west, to the east. Railroad historian Brad Linda tells us how Waco and surrounding communities grew along major rail lines. We talk specifically about the Cotton Belt Railroad that ran all the way from St. Louis to Gatesville. Downtown, the Cotton Belt ran down Mary Avenue, across the Brazos. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. We are very fortunate to have uh, Brad Linda with us, and this is a subject we haven't broached much in our episodes so far, but there's nothing more important to the uh, growth and development of Waco than the railroads. That's the lifeline for Waco for many, many decades, for over a century, and still uh, has great importance. But Mm -hmm. Brad has a a long history of interest, a generations-long history and interest of connection with the railroads, particularly the Cotton Belt Railroad. And so uh, he's here to visit with us about it, its history and about uh, his interest. All right, Brad, why don't you kind of introduce yourself and uh, kind of tell us some of your background. My name is Brad. I was born and raised here in Waco. On my dad's side of the family is where the railroad connection is. My grandmother's dad was a brakeman out of Waco for the Cotton Belt. And then nice. her cousin's uh, husband was a conductor out of Tyler. Through those connections, I you know, have met a bunch of retired railroaders and historians and avid model railroader, rail enthusiast. I'm a photographer. I, you'll often find me out on a side road somewhere next to a track with a camera taking pictures, chasing a steam engine or something like that. But you did say next to a track. Next to, not on the track, no. <laughs> <laughs> so just for, for new folks in Waco, Brad, can you locate the Cotton Belt for us? Because they're, they're going to think about bridges and they're going to think about right-of-ways. And... Sure. Uh, downtown, the Cotton Belt ran down uh, Mary Avenue, across the Brazos, between what's the Franklin Bridge now and the, the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Bridge, which is still active. The Cotton Belt track is completely abandoned from really behind Tejas Warehouse to 32nd Street. And then it's still in place. It runs, runs along behind the theater and goes under New Road. It 
continues sort of due west out through Hewitt and the end of track right now is at the Lehigh White Cement Plant in Woodway. Crosses Hewitt Drive behind the Walmart. Used to go on to McGregor through Harris Creek. The Cotton Belt Trail, the city's hike and bike trail, is on the old Cotton Belt right away out to Harris Creek. And then it went on into McGregor through Oglesby, Leon Junction, Mound to uh, North Fort Hood, which was Camp Hood during the war, into Gatesville. And then they went through some acquisition of a short line, they went into Hamilton and then on to Stephenville and Comanche from about 19, about 1910 to 1934. And then from they abandoned from Hamilton back to Gatesville in 1942. Gatesville lasted until 1972. The track came out in 74, 75, back to Lime City, which was a quarry just west of Oglesby. They were going to make cement. And then they found out that the cement from Lime City rusted. There was a high iron content. So that was the end of that. The track was pulled back to McGregor, from McGregor to the cement plant in the very late 80s, 88, 89, across the Santa Fe at McGregor. And so if we wanted to roll north on the Cotton Belt, we could go all the way to St. Louis. Isn't that right? Right. Uh, out through Axtell, uh, Dawson, Hubbard, Corsicana, up to Tyler, Texarkana and into Arkansas through Pine Bluff. The Cotton Belt actually got its start in Tyler. It was it was formed as the Tyler Tap Railroad. Then it became the Texas and St. Louis Railroad and started building northeast. And then in 1881, they came into Waco as the Texas and St. Louis, and they were narrow gauge, which is three foot between the rails. The first railroad in Waco was 1872, the Waco and Northwestern Railroad, which originally started as the Waco Tap, but we could go into a whole nother subject on that, but it was standard gauge. So for a short time, we had standard and narrow gauge in Waco. And then the Cotton Belt, Texas and St. Louis had some financial difficulties, reorganized and came out of that as the St. Louis, Arkansas and Texas Railway Company. And then as, as that, they, in one night, believe it or not, converted the entire main line from narrow gauge to standard gauge in 24 Whoa. hours. Yes, it was. So there's there's a bunch written on that, but they converted their entire main line over the course of a day. They ran into some financial troubles and in 1891 came out as the St. Louis Southwestern Railway Company, which is, yeah, it was the official name of the Cotton Belt until its uh, 1996 merger with the Union Pacific. In 37, the Southern Pacific Railroad acquired a controlling interest, and from 37 to 96, it was it was a wholly owned subsidiary of the Southern Pacific Railroad, but it was operated as a separate railroad. The uh, president of the Southern Pacific was chairman of the board of the Cotton Belt. They were intermingled quite a bit, but operationally and on paper, they were separate. Is this a passenger? Is this a, what are they hauling on the Cotton Belt? It was both. The last passenger train on the main line to Tyler was October the 14th, 1952. I've got a timetable here from 1934, and if I can find Waco, Tyler to Waco, that we had um, about three passenger trains a day on the Cotton Belt to okay. Waco and several freight trains and local, local freights. The Cotton Belt Depot was at uh, 4th Street in Mary the northwest corner, the old uh, Nabisco building is on the site where the depot was. Mm -hmm. 
and it was badly damaged in the tornado in 53. And since passenger service had ended six months before, it was not repaired. It was demolished. They had a, a pretty interesting operation where they ran what was called a mixed train between Waco and in the old days, Hamilton, but in the 50s back to just to Gatesville. And a mixed train was a combination freight and passenger train. It was a basically a local freight train that stopped and switched industries. It carried passengers in a long caboose. It was a 50-foot-long hmm. wooden caboose. It was set up with uh, bench seats for passengers and then had a cupola and a small baggage area for less than carload or express shipments. But that's, that's the train that my great-granddad worked on a fair okay. bit, was that train to Gatesville. And the Cotton Belt actually bought a special locomotive for that train uh, when they dieselized. After they pulled out from Hamilton, they removed what was called the Y track. And if you draw it out on paper, it looks like a, a Y. You could turn the train on it and go back the other way. Well, they pulled that out, and you can't run a steam locomotive backwards well. You can do it, but mm. not well. And so in 1948, they ordered from the Baldwin Locomotive Works in Philadelphia a 2,000-horsepower center cab diesel electric locomotive. It was about 75 feet long. The cab was in the middle, and it could go forward or backwards without needing to be turned. It was specifically purchased for the Waco to Gatesville run, although it did make some trips to Tyler for maintenance and repairs and, and stuff like that. But it pretty much lived its entire uh, 15-year service life on the Waco to Gatesville run. It was retired in 1963 and scrapped. So why can't you run a steam locomotive backward very well? As they got larger, there's a pivoting truck on the wheel set axles on the front end that helped guide the locomotive into curves. And a lot of the locomotives that Cotton Belt used here in Waco did not have a trailing axle or two that were pivoted. And with the weight of the firebox over the larger driving wheels, it, backing a steam locomotive any distance at any sort of speed without a trailing axle was just a recipe for a, Dangerous. a problem. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking, because we, we've talked on other episodes about the interurban and other rail lines, just how much passenger service is moving in and out of Waco, even up to this mid-20th century period. Well, the, uh, the Cotton Belt had two or three passenger trains between Waco and Tyler, Waco and Mount Pleasant a day. The uh, International Great Northern Railroad, which became the Missouri Pacific, uh, used the Cotton Belt passenger station. It was known as Union Station. They had a train or two a day into Waco. The San Antonio and Aransas Pass and the successor of the Waco Northwestern, the Houston, Texas Central, they abandoned their passenger stations and ran into the Cotton Belt Depot to Union Station. And then for about 20 years, from about 1911 to 1930, I'd have to go back and find the newspaper article, the uh, Gulf Colorado and Santa Fe ran a train from Temple up to McGregor and then ran over trackage rights to Waco on the Cotton Belt. But they ended that about the time of the Great Depression. I'm looking at a timetable now. The Katy, the Missouri, Kansas, Texas had, mm -hmm. oh, good grief. They had one train that didn't do so well, crashed into another one. Yeah, crash it, crash. <laughs> Randy's only interested in violence. <laughs> <laughs> the Katy had six passenger trains a day in each direction through Waco. I actually make that seven. 
And then they had another five or six freight trains a day, according to the 1923 timetable I'm looking at. So there were 15, 20 passenger trains a day through Waco in the heyday. Of course, the Cotton Belt stopped running passenger in 52. The Most other railroads had quit before that. Mm-hmm. And the Katy lasted until July the 26th of 1964 was the last run of the Texas Special. So it really was the automobile that was killing all this stuff, basically? Automobile, better air travel, mostly the automobile. But the, the Texas Special had dwindled from a 10 or 12 car train down to three or four and a couple of locomotives by the end. We were talking about East Waco earlier, and I think the Katy Depot was over on that side. The the passenger station was at 8th and Jackson, kind of under the parking lot for Waco Transit now was the Katy station. The Cotton Belt had a freight station at 8th and Mary. Okay. And then the Katy had a their yard and large shop complex was in Bellmead. And then the Cotton Belt had a yard across Katy Lane, which was actually technically in the city limits of Waco. The Katy Yard was in Bellmead, but the Cotton Belt was in, in Waco, and they called it East Waco Yard. It survived until intact, not used, f- until 2010, and it was scrapped. Had a 90-foot-long turntable in there that was used through the 90s for uh, Gulf States paper. Yeah, it used to be behind Cheddar's now, but they would get boxcar loads of paper that could only be unloaded from one side. So if the cars came in backwards, they had to have a way to turn them so that they could get those cars positioned correctly at the dock for Gulf States. The turntable lasted in use in the ni- up until up through the 90s, mid to late 90s. I think a bigger question here, Brad, maybe that you can help answer is, what did it mean for some of these uh, towns and cities to be on the line? Of course, Waco's got multiple lines here, but just talk a little bit about kind of the meaning and significance of that during this period. Well, a lot of these smaller towns like Mound, Gatesville, Hamilton, you know, Axtell, Hubbard, that were only served by one railroad. The railroad was mainly how you got your mail. In fact, the last passenger train on the Cotton Belt lasted as long as it did because it was the mail train that handled the U.S. mail to those small towns. So if you got your mail, they handled express. So if you ordered a bicycle or something like that, it would come in a baggage car on the passenger train and you'd go pick it up at the depot from the express agent. So it was really the lifeline for a lot of those towns. And with the the telegraph at the depot to send and receive telegrams. So a lot of those towns were on the map because of the railroad. Yeah. Information, goods, Mm -hmm. people, all that's moving through the depot. And that was a big part of the, of that mixed train that I mentioned, the the combination freight and passenger, not only did it handle, you know, carloads of freight for the businesses, for the cement plant, for, they actually had a believe it or not, a very large track plant inside the old Blue Bonnet Ordnance plant in McGregor, which is now SpaceX, that the Cotton Belt and Santa Fe would take turns switching. But that caboose, that long combine caboose that I mentioned, that's what handled all the less than carload and express shipments. So those new bicycles or the mail, stuff like that would all be handled by that mixed train. See, it's hard for me to believe that there are people listening that have never seen a caboose. 
in person <laughs> just because that that was such a big deal. Uh, I, I remember growing up uh, the caboose on the train. Is that a modified caboose? Is that what they would do? Is they take a caboose and stretch it? It was it was purpose built, but that's basically what it was. It was a stretched caboose that had passenger seating in it. I th- I want to say the seating capacity was twenty five or thirty in that in that car plus plus crew conductor and rear brakeman. So when did cabooses go out of out of use out of fashion? In the U.S. in the late eighties, as technology improved, a, a lot of what the conductor and brakeman did on the caboose was watch the train ahead for hot journals or defects in the train that could be observed. And with the advent of technology, now the caboose is a little box that hangs on the last coupler of the last car that's tied into the air brake system and sends a signal to the the front of the train that says, yeah, you've got X number of pounds of air pressure on the rear and you can initiate an emergency application from the rear by pushing a button in the cab. The caboose had a valve that if the conductor or brakeman saw something, they could reach up and pull the valve and stop the train. Late 80s on the cabooses. There's still some around. They use them for what are called shoving platforms. They've uh, welded all the doors and windows and where a local freight has to make a long reverse move to an industry or down a piece of track, they'll have a shoving platform that looks an awful lot like a caboose Hmm. sitting there for the crew to ride on safely. And there's still some uh, excursion railroads where you can charter a caboose and ride on a caboose for a day. The Texas State Railroad over in Rusk has one that you can rent. Brad's history going back with railroads is members of his family. So Brad, tell us kind of your family that worked on railroads, what their job is and what that means. Well, my great granddad that was a brakeman for the cotton belt what that was, was he was responsible for when the train stopped to do switching movements. Everybody had a, a job, the conductor, both brakemen. There was a brakeman on the front of the train and a brakeman on the rear of the train. The conductor rode on the rear in the caboose, and then the engineer, the fireman, and the head brakeman were all on the front end. Of course, with the advent of diesels, you really d- didn't need firemen anymore. So they would fan out, and they somebody would stand at a switch he could pass hand signals from the crew up to the locomotive because remember this is pre-radio. So you're talking with lantern, lantern signals and hand signals. So everybody knew what the hand signals meant. He would, uh, you know, you would tie handbrakes on a car. Each car has a handbrake, a, a wheel or a ratchet. You can set the brake on that car without needing air. And when you leave a car sitting on a siding, you make sure that you have the handbrake set because when the air bleeds off, it could roll away. So you had to make sure that the handbrakes were set so that when you came back, that car was still in the same place you left it. Very important. And then had a a cousin who was a conductor. The conductor is in charge of the train. The engineer is in charge of the locomotive, but the conductor is in charge of the the train as a whole. And he handled the waybills, which told this boxcar is going to this industry and it's loaded with this and they're billing this shipper and it's consigned here. The conductor would handle all that paperwork, and when they got back to the yard, would pass all that to the clerk to get it to accounting and billing and all that. He was in charge of making sure that the train didn't move unless it was safe to, if they had authority to get out on the main track. So, I mean, conductor was the boss, and nobody did anything without the conductor knowing about it. So how do you coordinate the movements of a train like that? You're talking pre-radio. Like, how do they make sure that they're 
the only train out there and they're going the right way and they're not, not going to hit somebody else. They ran on a very strict timetable and the timetable spelled out what trains would be in what town at what time. So if you're on and then the timetable had some trains were superior by right class or direction. So you had superior and inferior trains and inferior trains had to give way to superior trains. On most railroads, northbound trains were superior to southbound trains if they were of the same class. So you had a whole class structure of trains too. You had first class trains, which were your passenger trains and your, if you will, crack freights, your hot expedited freights. You had second class trains, which were some lower you know, mixed trains, uh, smaller, less important passenger trains, freight trains. And then you had third class and fourth class trains, which mainly were way freights and locals stopped and worked everywhere. You had to have your timetable. You had to look at the times for all of the trains in both directions. And you made sure that you were, if the northbound was supposed to be in Waco at 8 a.m. and you're in Axtell trying to get into Waco, you better make sure that you were in a siding somewhere within five minutes of the time that he was scheduled to be where you were. So a lot of that ran off uh, timetables. And then there was a, a dispatcher who, in the Cotton Belt's case, was in Tyler, and the dispatcher controlled the railroad. So the train may be scheduled to leave Waco at eight o'clock, but the dispatcher could say, nope, you're going to wait at Waco for you know, this train that's, you know, two hours late. So dispatcher controlled the railroad and each little depot, each town along the way had a, what was called an agent telegrapher. And so the dispatcher would call each station. Each station had a two letter telegraph identifier. So the dispatcher would telegraph the station and he could give an order. It was called a train order. And the, that train order could tell some lowly fourth class train that, well, actually you've got right over everything on the railroad to go. So the dispatcher could, if he needed to sort of shuffle things around, he could, but most things ran off the timetable. This is also a time when people are going off of watches that they wind. It seems like it's a recipe for disaster. Right. And there was a, a standard clock in each station, which was confirmed at least twice a day by telegraph signal from the corporate office. Okay. Each person on that crew had to have a railroad approved watch, which was a pocket watch and it was 16 size, 21 jewels, had to be stem wound, lever set, couldn't be in a hunter case. You know, the face couldn't be covered, had to have Arabic numerals and the winding stem had to be at 12 o'clock. So very strict standards on even what timepiece you were allowed to carry. It was well into this, into the 60s before they approved any sort of wristwatch to be worn. Related to this is the creation of time zones. So, you mm -hmm. know, it's the railroads in 1883 that began to use Eastern Standard Time, Central Time, and things like that. And one of the interesting things with that is some folks pushed back against that because they'd been using the sun so the fact that you were changing God's clock to tell you what time it was to the railroad setting what time it was when before it may have been 1206 in Chicago and may have been a different time in St. Louis. It's hard to run a railroad off the, off the <laughs> sundial. That's exactly right. Well, it sounds like they thought about all the issues I was thinking about. How on earth do you do this with just some torch signals and some hand signals? It just seems like it could be a mess. Having talked to some guys that 
work in that time, it was, you really had to be on your game. Uh, you had to be keeping an eye on your timetable. You had to read your train orders. There was a sea of paperwork that the railroad ran on. I, I've, in a lot of research, I found that apparently you couldn't railroad unless you had a stack of half letter size sheets of paper to write notes on. Cause I've got a bunch of notes on half size letter letter pages, but I mean, you had train orders were all written. They were dictated over the telegraph and the operator would write them down and then he would repeat them to the dispatcher and then hand them to the train crew. And then the crew had to read them. Everybody on the crew had to read and understand the order. So it was, it wasn't just here, you're going to run up to the next station. It was a very prescribed process for how to, how to fix that was the, the term they used. They were going to fix a train to run against another one. Brad, I want to talk about your volunteer work at, at some point, but you mentioned uh, uh, the process of desalization. Uh, c- can you talk a little bit about when that happened and maybe some major changes that were brought into that switch? The first real practical diesel locomotives were in the late 1930s. The Electromotive Division of General Motors came out with a locomotive that was called the FT. And it was colloquially known as the diesel that did it because it was the first diesel locomotive that was reliable, easily maintained with the facilities of the time. So with a steam locomotive, you had, if you're at the roundhouse at night, you had to have engine watchmen who tended the fires on the locomotives in the boilers. You had people running around with oilers constantly oiling locomotives. Every time a train stopped, somebody got off with an oil can and went around the steam locomotive and oiled it. You had to stop for water quite frequently and fuel less frequently, but water stops were important on the steam locomotive. Well, with the diesel, you pretty much just had to stop for fuel. You really didn't have to stop for for water every 50 or 60 miles. It became more economical for diesels because you weren't buying coal. You were buying just diesel fuel. So you weren't having to rail your own coal in. Uh, cotton, most of the railroads in Texas burned oil, heavier oil. So, But still, you would have to train your oil in or unless you were on a pipeline somewhere. With the switch to diesel, it became an easy, more easily available fuel. The locomotives required less maintenance, still a fair amount of maintenance, but they could run longer between inspections. So your maintenance people, you know, you weren't, didn't have a steam locomotive out for three days for a boiler inspection. Pretty much you just eyeballed a diesel and checked the fluid levels and off it went. I mean, that's incredibly oversimplified, but it <laughs> well, was. The, the other thing I think of is just that, as you mentioned, the boiler, just the safety mm-hmm. of uh, not operating a high pressure boiler. And for the most part, that was fairly safe, provided you kept an eye on your water level. Uh, you know, if you let the water get too low, then you had problem. The advent of the diesel meant that they could reduce the number of firemen that they had to have and eventually completely eliminated the position of firemen, mostly in the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, it took less people to make a diesel locomotive go, which was more economical for the railroads is basically the bottom line. Going to diesel was a cost-saving measure because they could eliminate a bunch of jobs, basically. Was it more powerful? Like, could you haul more cargo or people? Kind of depends on the diesel and the steam locomotive. There's, you know, it's like the Santa Fe that had wide open spaces. They had, and the Union Pacific too, they had some pretty darn massive steam locomotives. 
that would get up and go. And the sort of adage was a diesel can pull a train it can't start, but a steam locomotive can start a train it can't pull, which meant, you know, steam locomotive had an incredible amount of starting tractive effort. It could start a large train, but it had trouble keeping that rolling, whereas a diesel did not have quite as impressive starting tractive effort. It couldn't start as long a train as a steam locomotive could, but once it got going, it could keep that train moving. So it's a matter of torque. Basically. And how big, you know, if you're replacing a small steam locomotive with a 2,000 horsepower diesel, you're probably getting more out of the diesel than you are the steam locomotive. There's been some academic studies with the most modern steam locomotives that were built in the in, in the late 40s with roller bearings all over and how effective they were versus a diesel of the era. If you maintained your steam engines, they performed pretty well against diesels, but the economic advantage was well in the diesel's favor. We'd probably tapped out steam technology just where that would take us, and I guess there's a lot of development that happened on the diesel side. Well, there was a push in the 80s in the east to bring some sort of a steam turbine back. Hmm. And to prove their point, they took a very modern, large steam locomotive and pressed it into coal hauling service in the east for a period of time. And it was instrumented. And, you know, that was, of course, about the time that started about the time of the, the oil crisis in the 70s and 80s. And as oil fell back through the floor price-wise, that project was shelled because you still had the, our infrastructure now is for diesel electric locomotives. And to go back to a steam turbine, you'd had to put a bunch more infrastructure back in place. But this transitions well to, we still have steam locomotives. We do. So talk, talk, talk a little bit, Brad, about, uh, about your work and your volunteering. I volunteer with the Austin Steam Train Association. We run uh, excursion trains out of Cedar Park, just northwest of Austin. We go to Burnett and uh, some runs to Bertram. Right now, our steam locomotive is out of service for a complete uh, rebuild and restoration. They found some cracks in the large cylinders on the front of it about 20 years ago and have had to have those completely recast and a bunch of boiler work. We're running with a diesel right now, but we run excursions for the public, leaving from Cedar Park and going to Bertram and Burnett and have since 1991 was when they first started running. You know, there's there's other railroads around that still run steam. The Texas State Railroad in East Texas runs steam. The Union Pacific has a steam program. The Union Pacific Railroad has a steam program. They just finished last year the restoration on the world's largest steam locomotive, the Big Boy. And it ran for the 150th anniversary of the Gold Spike out to Salt Lake City. And later in the fall, it made a run to California and then came into Texas to San Antonio to Houston and ran through Texas, through Palestine, Longview, Marshall. It just made a big tour of most of the Union Pacific system. So that was I went down to San Antonio and photographed that coming in from Del Rio to San Antonio. That was a, that's an impressive machine. Yeah, so the Texas State Railroad I'm familiar with because I do the Polar Express every now and then with the kids. So, Randy, you can take the kids up and you can leave, I think you leave Rusk or you leave Palestine. I think it's you, Palestine. With yeah, them. you leave Palestine and you end up at the North Pole somehow. That's amazing. <laughs> we, run a, we run a train called the North Pole Flyer 
actually out of Bertram this year. We run Saturday and Sunday, four trips a day out and back for the Christmas trains. But normally it's an all-day uh, Cedar Park to Burn it and back excursion. But we we are just fixed. I think the first trains are the Saturday after Thanksgiving for the for our Christmas trains. So I think that's kind of reflective of nostalgia that we have surrounding trains. Talk a little bit about that, Brad, just to kind of the people that are enthusiasts and kind of the people that are drawn to, to maybe engaging in that sort of either from a hobby angle or for, from a participation angle. Well, I mean, you can look at the interiors of some of these passenger cars. Uh, the oldest car we run on the train was a 1937 example that was built for the Santa Fe Super Chief. It's owned by a private individual and leased to the organization, but the car is almost completely original. It's a great Art Deco. I mean, it's got some beautiful light fixtures and uh, artwork pieces on the in the lounge. The most recent car on the train is about 1950. So you've got you know, the golden age, if you will, of long distance passenger train travel in the United States. We've got some sleeper lounges. So if you want to see what a Pullman sleeper looked like, you can get a seat in a Pullman compartment set up in the day configuration. So the it's basically a big couch. And then at night, the couch folded down and became a bed and a bed came out of the ceiling. It's just a lot of that sort of art deco history. And then People that remember, you know, toy trains when they were kids, you know, probably the most famous is Lionel's Santa Fe war bonnet paint scheme, red and silver. You can still find a war bonnet running over in McGregor on the Santa Fe from time to time. They they still have some locomotives painted in that red and silver paint scheme. So a lot of them is, it's reminiscing about their youth. And then, you know, people like me that grew up with a couple of model railroaders in the family that we'd go over to McGregor and watch trains or we'd go over to Bellmead and look at the, from the outside, look at the Katy yard and the locomotives over there. You know, it's just, it's a neat activity. Keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> so to that end, what is the best place if somebody wanted to go see trains locally, where would they go near Waco? I would probably suggest going to Temple, the railroad and heritage museum in Temple, which is in the old Santa Fe Depot downtown. And they've got an old steam locomotive and some passenger cars and a couple of diesels and some cabooses. But they're set up in a way that Amtrak stops there so you can walk around all the equipment and watch trains. The There's a model railroad club that's in the old Moody station just to the north of their same complex. So, I mean, there's plenty of places to go and sit and watch and do it all safely, which is the most important part. You can sit in a chair behind the fence and watch the trains go by. And there's a pretty good number of trains that'll go through Temple daily. That's probably the best, safest place if you just want to go sit and watch is to go to Temple. Visit the museum. They've got a one of the diesel locomotives they have is a 1937 switch engine, which is the oldest surviving locomotive from the Santa Fe. And it was one of the, it was one of the first diesels that the Santa Fe bought. There's some pretty good pieces of history down there too. Brad, what's it like to operate one of these things? There is model dealing with model trains, but you're you're uh, getting in there and operating. Can you talk a little bit about just describe what that's like? Well, I don't actually run the train. That's the engineer. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, I uh, brakeman or conductor, depending on the okay the need of the day. So basically, it's just trying to be safe. It's fun being in the cab of the locomotive. Coming out of Burnett is a 2% grade, which is fairly steep in terms of railroad grades. And so with a long passenger train, it's neat to be in the left-hand seat in the cab 
when the engineer comes out all the way on the throttle and you know, the smoke bellows out of the locomotive behind us and, you know, everything is just sort of rattling. If it's not attached to something, it's rattling around in the floor. And if it is attached to something, it's trying to get to rattle around <laughs> on the floor. It's just, it's, a, it's one of those you have to be there experiences to see and hear and feel. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I, I can't imagine having that. I've never been on anything that had that much power, just the power. Well, the if you look at a freight train coming through Waco, uh, most of those locomotives are going to be between four and 4,400 horsepower, 4,000 and 4,400 horsepower a piece. So if you've got three or four locomotives, that's, you know, 18,000, 24,000 24, horsepower. Whoa. <laughs> and of course, some of the, like the long coal trains can be thirteen to 15,000 tons and 120, 130 cars. So that's a lot of weight. Do people still give you the, when you're in the cab, do they give you the uh, pull mm -hmm. signal? Randy may not know this. You reach <laughs> up in the air and you, you pull down. Yep. We still get that. And we oblige when, when we can. Is that part of your code of ethics? You have to oblige when you see that? Uh, especially if it's a kid. Yeah. <laughs> of course, in half the time they get scared because they didn't expect it to be that loud. <laughs> so what do you think your uh, great granddad would have thought if he could have seen the, the technology that I'm sure trains have today, like GPS and being able to monitor all the trains in the area and stuff like that? I think a lot of those guys would be flabbergasted because especially the Cotton Belt was never a big railroad. It never had the streamlined passenger trains like the Katy or the Southern Pacific or the Missouri Pacific. They only had a few passenger diesels. So for someone working on the Cotton Belt was sort of, it was a big family, but it was a poorer railroad. So they didn't have a lot of the big technological advances that some other railroads did. So they were really working with, you know, 1920s technology in the 1940s in terms of locomotives and passenger cars. And so they really didn't have the big advances. They were not as modern during that era. So even I think they would be flabbergasted with what we have today, 4,000, 4,500 horsepower locomotives and trains that are a mile and a half long that are only run with two people mm -hmm. instead of, you know, when, when he was working, a full crew was five. You had an engineer, a fireman, conductor, and two brakemen. Now you've got an engineer and a conductor on a road train. Down on the steam train, we run with four people. We don't have a fireman. We've got two brakemen, an engineer, and a conductor. There's a whole lot less people involved now with the railroad than there were back then. You, you, know, you hear talk about railroad towns. Well, that's because a whole lot of the people in that town worked for the railroad, either at the depot as an agent, at the roundhouse as a laborer, you know, on a train crew, in the office as a clerk. A lot of people, because most, you know, without computers, everything was a manual operation back at that time. And now you can, in a yard, the locomotives, a lot of them now are remote controlled. The guy running the locomotive may not even be in the cab of it. He'll have a belt pack in the yard somewhere, making it go back and forth. So I don't have a lot of experience riding trains in the U.S., but I have a lot of experience riding trains in Japan, and they are probably very opposite from the kind of experience you're talking about, including riding some of those bullet trains. Do you think that's something that's going to come to the United States in any meaningful way? And will that change things again, you think? I hope so. Uh, there's, there's a company looking to build a high-speed rail line from Dallas to Houston that I hope comes to fruition and is successful and sparks some expansion. You know, Dallas to San Antonio, Austin, Waco, 
I think that's a potentially massive corridor for for rail expansion. There's some a company in Florida called Brightline that is running around Orlando area. They're not high speed, but they're higher speed passenger trains. I think there's a lot we could do to improve passenger rail access in the U.S., and I think it could be successful if it's done right. It could bring back some of those depot areas in some of these towns that have Mm -hmm. maybe gone neglected, but now that you have a reason and a bunch of people coming into one point without cars and stuff, it might be an interesting experience again. Right. I mean, you can still get on Amtrak over in McGregor, but beginning in October, Amtrak is, you know, train used to be twice daily and now it runs three days a week. Mm -hmm. So it leaves San Antonio on Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, and it leaves Chicago on Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. So, you know, it's not a daily train anymore, but you can still go get on it. And they've still got a sleeping car on there. You can book a a Pullman berth from here to Chicago or then connect to the West Coast, the East Coast. You can go to San Antonio pretty much and do the same thing. You can go to L.A. or New Orleans from San Antonio. So what does it cost to go to from McGregor to Chicago? I haven't <laughs> priced that in a while. Uh, I rode from McGregor or from Taylor to Longview and back about three years ago. And the round trip coach ticket was about 50 bucks. It's not bad. No, it wasn't bad at all. <laughs> and what was that experience like on the on a modern passenger train? Smooth and quiet. The reason we rode, there were a group of us that went and rode. The normal route for the train was having maintenance. And so they rerouted the train over some tracks that had not seen scheduled passenger service since the 1960s. And actually, it came back down the cotton belt from Big Sandy through Tyler to Corsicana. And that hasn't seen a scheduled passenger train since 52. So, and then the Corsicana went from Corsicana down to Hearn, and that there there was a section of the Texas Eagle that ran from Dallas to Houston through Corsicana in the 90s. So a little less time away from scheduled passenger service on that line, but it was neat to ride what we consider rare mileage on a passenger train. There, I say there were probably eight or ten of us that went and got on at Taylor and rode in the lounge car all the way to Longview, lunch in the diner. You know, it was a fun experience, but it was smooth and quiet and comfortable. (laughs) Nothing like those trains you're usually on, huh? Right. (laughs) You know, bringing it back to Waco, as you you think about the importance kind of of Waco's development, you know, late 19th century, 20th century, and maybe what happened here that didn't happen other places. I mean, how do you think about that? Because you're a Wacoan, so kind of bringing that back around to think about kind of your hometown and kind of your knowledge of the railroads. Uh, what do you think about kind of Waco's railroad history in general? I don't think Waco would be as big as it is today without its railroad history. I mean, Waco at one time had six separate railroads plus the interurban that served it. So you had connections everywhere. You had connections to Kansas City. You had connections to San Antonio, to Houston, to the west to the east you could get anywhere from waco on a passenger train or ship anything on a freight train in any direction you wanted out of waco it was a great asset for the businesses to be able to ship and receive and i I honestly don't think waco would be the town it is today if we had not had those connections and then what's important to me Hearing you say earlier, all the places you can see some of the old cotton belt track, 
where where's the best place to go if you want to kind of walk a, an old abandoned stretch of track and kind of see where the train used to go? Go to the Cotton Belt Trail out in Woodway from Woodway to Harris Creek, the city's Cotton Belt Trail. That's on the old Cotton Belt right away. Goes over the uh, South Bosque River on the the bridge pillars that carried the Cotton Belt out to Harris Creek. And like I say, it's it's literally on the old Cotton Belt right away, and you can tell as you're walking uh, between the the Hannah Hill end and the South Bosque River. You can tell, you know, there's some curvature and there's some slight cuts through the terrain. You can tell it was an old railroad track. I believe the city is also working on some of the old Texas Central main line to become a hike and bike trail as well over in uh, East Waco. Uh, and there's long been discussion to do something with the Cotton Belt Bridge uh, over the Brazos mm-hmm. uh, to make it a passenger uh, kind of conduit there. It's blocked off now. And a lot of people don't realize that's actually the second Cotton Belt Bridge over the Brazos. There was one a couple hundred feet upriver that was the first bridge. And then the I'd have to go back and look. I think the new bridge was like 1906 or 7, something like that, early 1900s. And when the when the river would flush with the, the dam and the river, the lake would go way down, you could see the pilings for that original bridge uh, just north of the of the current one. Interesting. So, so not germane here, but the other thing I remember about railroads is pennies on the track and trying to get <laughs> trying to get a dime to meld with a quarter. You would lay them on the track as the train went by. Y'all didn't do that growing up. I did, but I don't think it ever worked, did it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you hit it just right, you could make it work. I've got some smushed pennies around at the house somewhere <laughs> where we did that, yeah. I feel like whenever we tried, it just fell off from all the rumbling when the train came by. It's a skill like anything else. <laughs> Brad, thanks so much for coming on and mm-hmm. teaching us all about the railway here in Waco. Thank you, Brad. You're welcome. It was fun. Cross the Brazos and Waco Brother Well Brewing is the official local brewery of the Waco History Podcast. Back on tap, try the Shelter and Haze, Hazy IPA. And look for their beers in the Wooded Acres HEB. That's Brother Well Brewing on Historic Bridge Street, the beer that pairs perfectly with Waco history. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. I walked straight in old San Antonio. Then the night came alive with gunfire. He knew that at last it'd been found. As the ranger's badge showed brightly, El Bandito lay on the ground. Carmela knew he was dying, that all of her dreams were in vain. As she kissed his lips for the last time, she heard him whisper again. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it.
I'm safe when I reach San 